Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Bridget Fielder about her new book, Relative Races, Genealogies of Interracial Kinship in 19th Century America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fielder. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this book. I am really excited about this book and the work that you do. To start us off, I wonder if you would please tell us about yourself. Um, well, uh, I um, specialize in 19th century U.S. literature, uh, increasingly early African-American literature, um, theories of race and gender. I sometimes work on children's literature and childhood studies. Um, and uh, I work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Could you tell us a little bit about your own academic path that got you from uh, where you started to where you are now? Um, Well, I um, started taking early American literature classes as an undergraduate and promptly dropped American Lit 1 and threw out my whole major. Um, and majored instead in philosophy and religious studies. And then I did a master's degree in theological and religious studies. Um, And that whole time I worked in different ways on 19th century literature, uh, though not American literature. Um, And it it wasn't until I did a master's degree in English um, that I was kind of finally drawn towards U.S. literature um, as a place of specialization Um, I actually started my PhD at Cornell thinking that I would do Victorian literature or maybe transatlantic literature and just ended up in the U.S. 19th century, uh, I think in part because of the interdisciplinarity and just capaciousness um, of of the field um, that that didn't seem as tightly bound to... um, specific literary genres, um, uh, where transatlantic connections could be explored, um, uh, and, and, and where even periodization, uh, what, what was allowed to extend beyond, um, you know, the boundaries of a century and what we call the long 19th century, which, um, ends up being kind of as long as one needs it to be as many of these ideas are still ongoing. And, um, it was really in my studies in U.S. literature that I came to African-American literature before 1900 um, as something that I didn't have in my previous uh, educational formal training, um, going to predominantly white institutions, which was um, kind of conspicuously absent from um, my previous classes in literature um, and realizing what a, a rich and interesting uh, and exciting field um, uh, African-American literature was, um, learning uh, how exciting uh, American women writers were, uh, particularly people who weren't very well known um, in kind of popular uh, conversation, um, really kind of opened up that field for me as a graduate student kind of late in the game. And what inspired you to write this book? 
Um, well, really, um, just the kind of array of, of texts that I was reading, um, and I found myself compelled by um, a kind of odd array um, of texts in which I initially kind of struggled to um, describe what was happening um, in them. And so um, you know, really, this book came out of a number of questions um, in, in which I would read something and um, and say, "Hmm, what's going on here?" Like reading William Allen's narrative of Mary King and saying, "Huh, it's it's interesting that they compare her to this mixer's heroine in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, what's going on with that, and how can one explain, uh, you know, what what's happening here?" Um, and, and those questions um, and trying to answer those questions and really um, just kind of realize what was what was happening um, uh, was, you know, really what led me to the book. So would you describe your field as American studies then? You have such a broad background and it sounds like for your intellectual hunger, there was no one department that was going to satisfy it. And so you intentionally sought out different fields of study throughout your higher ed. Um, well, yeah, but uh, my my work is is really strongly um, influenced by an American studies approach to American literature, um, though that approach was pretty um, pretty central in um, thinking of how U.S. literary studies was um, approached in in classes in early and nineteenth century American literature at Cornell, where I got my degree. Um, and so there was really um, kind of always, uh, you know, the availability of, of, of interdisciplinarity in those classes that were, um, you know, tied to other fields like American Indian studies and like gender studies. Um, there was an American studies program in which courses were cross-listed. Um, but, you know, those kinds of conversations um with historians, with people in political science, um, you know, with, with people in ethnic studies fields, like African-American studies, um, uh, were really in, in many ways just kind of part and partial to um, uh, the, the courses that I took there and kind of what other people um, did and what I kind of realized was possible um, when doing U.S. literary studies. So they really encouraged you. Uh, to mm-hmm. do this, it sounds like you found the right place for the kinds of questions you were going to be asking that couldn't be satisfied in just one discipline. Yeah, well, I was really also very, um, very privileged to have uh, strong advisors in that program and uh, an array of peers um, who, who were interlocutors um, who worked in, you know, the American 19th century kind of broadly, but who all did different things and, and brought, um, you know, different interests to their work. Um, uh, in getting to know people in 19th century U.S. literary studies in general, I found people uh, who were also engaging kind of broadly in, in, in interdisciplinarity in African-American studies, in gender studies and study of American women writers and children's literary studies. And your current job uh, allowed some space for you to write this particular book. If I'm understanding that acknowledgements correctly, there was a fellowship, there was time to really dig into this project and produce this book. Is that right? Um, yes, I had a pre-tenure fellowship um, in, in which I had some time to write. Um, 
And I also had um, the opportunity to do a bookshop workshop um, in which I got some feedback from people in a variety of fields, um, uh, not just 19th century U.S. studies, but um, um, people who I thought were smart and who would, um, you know, be good readers in general of of work in American studies, American literature, kind of broadly construed, um, and um, that and kind of ongoing conversations with lots and lots and lots of people outside of UW um, uh, really allowed me to kind of re-realize this, this project in, in ways that were very different from when I started at the outset. So for listeners who may not have had a chance to get their copy of the book yet, could you give us your synopsis or your elevator pitch of this book, please? Um, yeah, so this is a book um, about how race works and the ways that narratives of interracial kinship in uh, 19th century U.S. literature show us that um, people are conceiving of race not simply in terms of um, biological genealogies passed down from parents to children, but as a construction uh, that is influenced by people's relations beyond um, those downward genealogies. So relations of sexual kinship, kinship with um, sexual partners, um, relations of parents to children um, are also things that racialize people uh, in the text that I discuss. And so if we jump into the text, um, one of the things I love when I'm given a book to do a podcast is the acknowledgments. I, I always look at who the book is dedicated to and I look at the acknowledgments. And I was thrilled to find out that you love acknowledgments as much as I do. Um, so if you will indulge me for a moment, I'd love to read a paragraph out of the acknowledgments for listeners. You write, whenever I assign an academic monograph in a graduate course, I always ask my students to read the acknowledgments. I tell them that book acknowledgment sections are a reminder that even single-authored academic writing is not done in isolation, but in relation. I explain that reading this section carefully is as important as paying close attention to citational practices. I ask them to consider this genre of genuinely grateful and deeply loving writing as they find their people and work to build and sustain ethical communities of learning, colleagueship, camaraderie, and care. I ask them to remember how family, both biological and non-biological, influences a writer's life and work and helps to shape it, hopefully for the better, whether or not these folks have read or ever will read the works written in their loved ones' books. It goes on from there, but I love that. I feel like it's such a wonderful foundation for the philosophy of the book itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your love of acknowledgments and, and some of what you put in yours, please? Well, I, I started reading acknowledgment sections as a graduate student um, in a way of you know, just trying to learn about the field, learning who was in conversation with one another, quite literally. Um, and that was revealing in acknowledgement sections. You can see who went to grad school together, who is in a writing group together, um, you know, uh, what, what people at the same institution are in conversation with one another. Um, you can see friendships, um, you can see relations beyond academia. Um, and, 
when I started teaching graduate students um, and I started teaching um, monographs in those classes, especially classes on things like um, race and theory, I made a point to make sure the graduate students in my classes were reading the acknowledgement sections um, as a mode of um, not just understanding these texts themselves, but just general professionalization. Um, you know, here in, in Wisconsin, my students don't always have the same kind of geographical access to people at other institutions um, that I had in the Northeast where, um, where universities are just kind of closer together, clustered. Um, I think it's very difficult for students who don't necessarily have a huge uh, community of peers in their same field to understand how that field is operating. I benefited from coming up with a lot of 19th century Americanists, people who were operating in the same general field as I was in tandem with one another. And we learned collectively through our experiences in that field. And we operated not just individuals, I think, but um, as a group of, of people, as, as junior scholars. Um, my partner is a 19th century Americanist. And so um, you know, we've been working kind of in tandem in, in our field for quite some time. Um, and as I started to teach graduate students from lots of different fields and in, in rather eclectic groups of students from various departments and with various, um, uh, you know, emphases, um, especially students who are working on race, sometimes in predominantly white fields, um, the importance of learning about actual human relationships became a point of professionalization and a, a point that um, I think we really need to be deliberate about when we talk about what is going to be sustaining about this work. Uh, and, and for me, that's always been actual relationships with actual people, um, not just um, the people that I'm reading, but, but you know, people that I know in, in, in real life and have had actual human conversations with. And so, um, you know, I wrote this in the middle of um, the pandemic semester in which our, uh, our, our campus experiences were curtailed. We stopped going to campus. We started meeting virtually. Um, and it was an opportunity to think even more uh, deliberately about what it means to be in physical proximity to one another in conversation and relation, because all of those relations were taken to this kind of virtual space in which they had to be even more deliberate. You didn't run into anybody in, in spaces on campus anymore. I didn't meet with my students in class anymore where we would pause um, midway through the period and make tea and chat before we moved on. Um, and so I wrote my acknowledgments, you know, after following my own graduate experience, thinking more deliberately about mentoring the graduate students who I was in conversation with, but also in this moment in which thinking about relation uh, really, really shifted, I think, for me, um, and in, in which um, being as transparent as, as possible, I think, about the necessity of, you know, being deliberate about relationships um, in, in, in academia um, was something that we, uh, you know, kind of can't um, let fall by the wayside, I think. Um, and so, um, you know, I also wrote this with a lot of support from, you know, from, from, from various community in which during that pandemic moment, 
I had to fact check this book and check all of my check my citations. And um, I didn't have that library access. And so sometimes that involved, you know, writing to somebody and saying, look, my copy of your book is in my office, which I can't access. So could you send me a picture of this page so that I can check this quotation? Um, and that happened in, in conversation with some of the people who I, who I knew, who I was citing. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, that th- this acknowledgement section um, was really informed by, um, you know, both that, you know, the general professional practice in which um, I, I've been thinking about relations in my fields and, and also, um, you know, this, this moment in which those relationships um, and conversations had to be sought out in ways um, that were a bit different in the absence of things like going to campus or going to conferences. One of the things that I love that you have in the acknowledgments is a section about uh, your parents and about yourself. I'd like to read just a little bit of that. You write, my parents, Sue Ann Fielder and Stephen Fielder have never questioned my ability to complete this or any academic project. Their unconditional love and support has been a radical alternative to the various forces that would discourage a black girl, a first-generation college student, a non-academic worker, a mother, or someone in any other position of academic marginalization I have occupied. These were the were the first theorizers of race I encountered, and it is perhaps from them that I learned the basic premise of this study, that race is often believed to work in certain ways, but that is not necessarily so. You go on to say that your parents are people who taught you to love to read and to love reading, and that they were the first to put um, African-American literature into your hands at a time when for about two decades, nobody else was. Um, the acknowledgments in many ways reads to me as the underlying philosophy on which the theories that you then present in the book where you're taking apart what is what is race, how do we understand identity, how do we understand kinship, what is and isn't family, who does and doesn't define it, what is a genealogy, kind of all comes back to rest on so much of what you have in the acknowledgements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you know, everybody I think says that your research in many ways is often about you. Um, uh, though certain people's research is kind of, you know, um, regarded as being about them and certain people's research is regarded as kind of using universalizing in lots of ways. And that falls oftentimes along kind of clear racialized lines um, but, you know, there's no way in which this book about interracial kinship is not about my own experiences as a mixed race black woman and, uh, relationship to, um, you know, the various kinds of, of literature, often understudied literature that I'm, um, treating here. And in, in many ways, that's a longer story than the story of my academic professionalization. Um, but, like, you know, um, other people, I bring, um, you know, my own experiential expertise to this project in addition to my academic expertise. Um, and, you know, that's very, very much informed um, how I'm doing the work I'm doing here. In some ways, it goes back to the the writing advice, which is write the book that only you could write. 
And this book seems to incorporate so much of your your passions and philosophies and scholarship in such a profoundly unique way. And yet it is very universal. I know for me, um, my work is also uh, in 19th century American uh, history. This book puts together and names so many um, unnamed things that I struggled with in my own research. You fill in so many of the gaps and you contextualize and put together theories that help so much make sense that that isn't put together anywhere else in the literature. And part of that is your unique ability to bring in um, queer theory and black feminist theory. Can you talk about how that helped you decode the um, literature that you're using in the book? Yes. Um, you know, I started writing this this project thinking of myself as a person who didn't and couldn't do theory. Um, you know, I'd studied, you know, you know, things, things that people call theory with a capital T in various ways. Um, since I was an undergraduate, my bachelor's degree is in philosophy, a very, um, white male dominated field, um, almost exclusively in the texts that I was taught in that field, um, in theological and religious studies, my first master's degree, it was pretty much the same in theory courses. Um, and, you know, at, um, Cornell, uh, you know, in a department, um, kind of known for theory with a capital T, the idea of theory with a capital T, um, has still been overwhelmingly white and male. Um, and so the idea of, of, of who could and couldn't do theory, um, I think is, is part of some, you know, kind of really, um, problematic ideas that I've absorbed over the course of my education, um, in which overwhelmingly, um, theory has been, you know, the, the way I've been presented theory um, has been only through white male perspectives. And so um, I came to Black feminist theory in this project um, in, in some of the last work that I did in my dissertation project in my, in my early um, kind of iterations of this um, and still thinking about whether that meant that I could really engage with theory was not something that I was at all confident about. Um, as I started this out, um, you know, it really wasn't until my dissertation defense that I kind of had ideas that the, the ideas of theory that I really kind of ended up with in the project um, were actually more of a starting point. Um, I also, um, you know, in my first iteration of this, didn't engage queer theory at all. Um, and came to um, this body of theory that I had been reading as a graduate student for quite a while, just because queer theory in 19th century U.S. Um, literary studies is, is, is quite strong and, and interesting. Um, but as I realized that um, this was where um, I thought the most interesting um, critiques of kinship were, the most interesting critiques of time were, um, as I wrote about genealogy, I realized that that was what I needed in order to write this book. But um, as I worked towards, you know, making this this kind of theoretical intervention, um, I was very, very hesitant for quite a lot of time um, with my ability to do work that would have been theoretical um, or that I I would have called theoretical or that anyone would have called theoretical. Um, And it's really because of conversations with other people um, 
that I changed my mind about that and and decided that th- this was a book that could try to center those kinds of um, you know theoretical conversations um, and that uh, allowed me to do things like talk about um, this book as offering a, a different theory of racial formation, for example. Um, and you know that I think really, made this a different kind of book than otherwise I thought it was going to be. Um, I definitely didn't originally think of um, Duke University Press as a place that I could place my work uh, until I had a, you know, conversation with um, uh, Elizabeth Freeman and and Peter Coviello who encouraged me to send it there. Um, I I thought of Duke as a theoretical press um, and I very much enjoyed reading books from there, but didn't think that this was the kind of work that I could do or would, would be doing. Um, and so, you know, that really helped me to just kind of change my perspective um, of, of, you know, my work as a scholar and of, you know, um, what I, what I think this book needed to do or needed to be, or needed to incorporate um, in order to explain the phenomenon that I was trying to explain. And the phenomenon that you're trying to explain is that race is constructed, socially constructed, and socially reproduced. Yeah, I mean, and I think also the how, right? Um, uh, so, you know, we know that race is constructed. And, you know, I think students, when you talk to them about, about race, will tell you like, yeah, yeah, race is a social construction. It's, it's, it's not really biological. But in, um, you know, social conversations about race, people still talk about it in, in distinctly biological terms. Um, that often has to do with things uh, about genealogy um, and the idea of, of race as inheritable. Um, but I realized that, you know, the, the, the primary ways that we understand race as being inheritable in the United States um, are also very largely dependent upon these odd theoretical constructions of race. They, you know, they're, um, you know, like racism, race isn't quite logical. It doesn't always um, do the things that that we expect it to do. And this is one of the ways that, um, one of the things that tells us, uh, you know, that it's, that it's constructed. Um, And even the theory of hypodescent, um, that is, you know, probably the predominant um, understanding of race in the United States, the one drop rule that determines blackness, right? Um, really doesn't follow these ideas about um, biological in- inheritance, um, you know, that, that would otherwise trace genealogy, um, you know, quite differently, um, but that that selective genealogy for racialization was one kind of key point um, that showed us not just that race was constructed, but how that it's constructed via relations, but um, in, in in ways that are selective, uh, oftentimes. And so, to get at the how, you um, you give us several case studies that you take from from history, from literature, from uh, a famous play, from a number of sources. And I think one of the um, examples that ties right into where we are in this conversation is chapter two, Almost Eliza. Um, Could you tell us about this um, particular couple and the complexity of it not being illegal for them to get married in New York and yet it being virtually impossible for them to safely and happily do so? 
Right. Great. Yeah. So, um, so New York State, um, the state I'm from, is one of really a handful of states that never had any um, what are called anti-miscegenation laws, laws um, preventing interracial marriage. And these vary kind of widely across states. They always have to do with specific groups of people in the population that white people can't legally marry. They change over time. And those laws aren't outlawed until um, the 1967 Supreme Court case loving v. Virginia. Um, but New York never had these laws. And so it was legal for um, black and white people to get married, though it was not socially acceptable in the mid-19th century, as anybody can imagine. So um, a lot of uh, interesting anti-slavery history in New York State. Um, uh, and one really interesting, I think, you know, case um, that comes out of um, uh you know, anti anti slavery history is uh, New York Central College, a co educational, racially integrated um, college in upstate New York uh, that was rather short lived, um, but at which William Allen, um, a, a mixed race black man, um, taught, uh, he was a classics professor, um, in which Mary King, the white daughter of abolitionists, attended. And so this couple um, gets married. Um, uh, there's a lot of, uh, opposition to, to their marriage, um, from their community in, um, Fulton, New York, which is, uh, very close to where I'm from. Um, and, uh, they have support from their, um, uh, some of their friends. They eventually, uh, elope and they leave the country. And from what we know, they don't come back. Um, William Allen writes a narrative of, uh, this experience called the American Prejudice Against Color. It's published in 1853, um, and uh, it's published published abroad. It's not published in the United States, but um, you know, news of their marriage circulates in the in the black press. They're you know they're they're people who are known in various ways, and in this narrative, he um, tells us his version of events. Um, but he also publishes some newspaper accounts of. Um, Things like this white mob that attempts to, uh, that actually takes uh, Mary King back to her father's house. And some of her family seems very opposed to this marriage, but some of her family doesn't and seems to be supporting them. Um, he counts, uh, you know, he, he gives these reproductions of things from white racist newspapers. He also reproduces some letters from both Mary King and from some of their friends. And he gives his own uh, version of these events. And um, you know, in, in, in one of these letters from a friend, um, uh, a friend of theirs compares her to Eliza Harris, the mixed race heroine of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And they're talking about the fact that the couple is um, going to leave, they're going to elope and leave the country. And, um, and he writes, you know, um, your flight is a flight for freedom, and I can almost call you Eliza, something to that extent. Um, and so, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, you know, this story, which is really, really interesting to me for a lot of reasons. But this point kind of stood out, like, you know, this white woman, um, you know, in this whole kerfuffle depends upon the whiteness of this woman. This is the reason that everybody is upset about this. Um, but then these anti-slavery friends of theirs, you know, compare her to this mixed race heroine um, uh, in Uncle Tom's cabin. Um, and so... Um, I was interested in what's going on with that. Um, what does it mean to read this white woman as though in the genre 
of a mixed race heroine. Um, and, and here genre became, you know, kind of one way in which race is read. Um, if you didn't know the race of this woman and you were reading about, you know, these, these people who have to flee the country because of this racist mob that would put their family at risk, um, it would be easy to read her not as a white person, but to, to read her as, um, you know, uh, one of these, you know, p- uh, popular heroines of anti-slavery fiction, for example. Um, and so thinking about how uh, reading race and reading genre kind of align um, became a very useful mechanism for um, just, un- uh, you know, kind of talking about um, what we do when we construct race, um, how we read according to scripts that we think are kind of familiar um, how we, you know, make comparisons across texts or resemblances, um, uh, and um, uh, this, you know, th- th- this this case, I think, um, you know, gives us um, a, a little bit of a grounding for some of the rest of the book to understand, um, you know, how how reading practices and racial construction kind of happen. Um, in these texts that are about race um, and also in which um, people think about reading race through bodies who maybe do or maybe don't um, uh, evidence uh, racialization in the ways that are usual. And you you talk about this mob that shows up uh, as having this mindset that they were there to rescue her. And you compare that to uh, another text where a white woman was living with Native Americans. Can you talk more about this idea that these white women have to be saved by angry mobs? Yeah. So you know, um, you know, so a lot of um, you know anti-miscegenation marriage law and, and rhetoric about um, uh, uh, you know. A lot of racist rhetoric um, use employs white women as um, a, a kind of white supremacist prop. Um, you know, the idea that white women must be protected from black men, right? Or the idea that white women must be protected from native men um, is, uh, you know, kind of common trope. And the thing is, is that. Um, while historically um, white women have often been complicit in this, um, this, this, this project of this particular white supremacist project, um, that complicity is not necessary and um, they haven't always been. And so those exceptions, you know, kind of show um, the farce of these claims of protection. So there were, for example, um, uh, you know, white women who, um, you know, lived as, as, as captives in Native communities, but who resisted being reclaimed for white society. And I talk about Mary Jemison, for example, in the fifth chapter, um, Narrative of the Life of Mary Jemison is, um, you know, a story in which a woman, um, uh, it, you know, is captured, but then she is adopted into a different tribe. Um, and um, she, uh, you know, be- becomes Seneca in this, um, context in which, um, you know, being Seneca is not a matter of biology, but a matter of behavioral kinship. Um, and that community recognizes her um, as, uh, you know, a, a full member. She has um, 
uh, she marries, she has children, and um, she is uninterested in being redeemed um, as, as white women captives were. And so um, the um, the rhetoric around Mary King is it, kind of similar to this this idea that that white women um, you know um, require redemption. Um, and so all of these accounts of Mary King um, paint her very, very differently from William Allen and all of their friends and her own letters. And so painting this woman as a damsel in need of protection, as a captive who needs saving, um, which is what a lot of these newspaper accounts are doing, um, has to do a lot of work to refuse this woman's own agency, to, to refuse her ability to make her own um, you know, sexual decisions. Um, and uh, they, they have to um, you know, defy even her own accounts of this. And so, um, so, so, so reading these things, we get very, very different characters that, that were read here. So these people are reading her as though she is Eliza from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, but uh, these racist newspaper accounts are reading her as this damsel who has been kidnapped um, and who needs to be saved. Um, and, and who needs to be returned to her father's house. But in reality, um, they do all of this by, they, by force and against this woman's will. Um, and she is, you know, talks about being a captive of um, you know, the, the white people who are preventing her marriage freedom. Um, uh, and, and, and so we have these very, very different accounts uh, of what's going on here um, that are recognizable because they mirror certain literary genres um, in, in, in which we um, we see this, and so reading her as the in the in the um, tradition of the captivity narrative um, creates a familiar enough story uh, that that readers of the racist press probably recognize that as a kind of story that they'd seen before, um, even while you know that that story uh, you know had to ignore. Um, you know, the reality of, uh, you know, and, and I think this person herself um, would, would have said or done. You talk in the book about um, how race is a social construction um, and about how kinship models can um, deconstruct whiteness. In the example of Mary Jemison, by living with the Senecas and through kinship, becoming Seneca and having children and marrying, um, she's by white society standards, no longer white. And sort of um, at the core of the white mob mentalities that are coming out is this anxiety over um, that whiteness is precarious. Mm-hmm. And those are um, things that you that you grapple with quite a lot in um, chapter six. Can can you talk about how these two cases in particular help illustrate that um, white anxiety over the tenuous of whiteness and why kinship itself um, is threatening to that, but also what you propose as incredibly important, the importance of looking at kinship models and what it, what it can mean for how we move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, one interesting question is, you know, 
you know, why do white supremacists care so much about interracial marriage as a thing that they want to prevent? Um, And this, I think, suggests something revealing about the construction of race, right? If, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the idea that race, um, is precarious and that whiteness especially is precarious because of these, um, you know, this, this construction of of hypo descent that, um, you know, that, that any amount uh, of, of, of a blackness, for example, would make somebody black, um, you know, the, the argument against interracial marriage for white supremacists is that, you know, this will lead to the literal non-existence of white people, right? Um, and, you know, th- this, is, this is something that we see in, you know, in, um, you know, this, this rhetoric, um, you know, in this racist text that I read from the 1830s, Jerome Hillgate's Sojourn in the City of Amalgamation. It's something that we see in contemporary contexts when people talk about something like white genocide, um, but, um, what it really reveals, I think, is, um, uh, a lot about the construction of whiteness as well. Um, you know, that, 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 that whiteness, um, you know, it, it is something that gets framed in these ways, um, especially through white women who, um, uh, are, are, are the people who are tasked kind of with the, um, uh, the, the project of, of reproducing whiteness, um, in a way that is, uh, very, very skewed in terms of, of, of gendering. Um, and it's know, very circular, you say in the book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, white, white women reproduce, um, you know, the, the white family that will reproduce the white nation that will reproduce white people who will reproduce the white family. You know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, um, um, how these implications shift to different scales, um, that, you know, always kind of loop back, uh, on one another. And kinship breaks the circle. Yeah. Well, kinship becomes, I think, you know, the, you know, the, the, the kind of pivot point, right. For, um, for any of, of, of this construction, right. How, um, how we understand, uh, race being reproduced has to do with the literal reproduction of people, um, and, you know, those relationships between um, differently racialized people inform how the race, how race gets produced. And that is not always in, um, you know, these discrete, um, easily identifiable racialized boxes. But a lot of the time it, it messes up those categories um, in, in, in ways that become a problem for people who are invested in um, preserving whiteness, especially. And you talk about um, a 19th century writer who wants to mess this up, uh, Lydia Maria Child's uh, book, where she's talking about uh, racial mixing as natural, and she writes a book about a novel uh, with these themes in it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, Lydia Murrah Child's *Romance of the Republic* um, is a Civil War novel published in 1867, um, and it's in the um, uh, you know the the genre of mixed race heroine fiction in which we have these um, these women who did not know that they were mixed race black women, but find out um, later, and they go on to actually marry um, 
white men and and reproduce um you know this kind of amalgamated nation um in a way that um becomes quite controversial uh, you know uh, Lady Maria Child is, is kind of known for um uh you know having uh, you know controversial uh views she's you know as a support she's a, not opposed to interracial marriage for example which um a lot of abolitionists a lot of white abolitionists distance themselves from um um in this you know um uh you know kind of anxiety that like people who wanted to abolish slavery would also want to integrate um uh the races um in so both in social spaces and to allow interracial marriage and so um because a lot of white abolitionists were um uh pretty clearly also white supremacists um oftentimes they would distance themselves from, from this idea. Oh, you know, we're abolitionists, but we are definitely not amalgamationists. Um, but Lydia Maria Child is, is kind of clearly an amalgamationist. Um, and, uh, but she does this in, in a way that is, um, that, you know, that still gives us these very, um, you know, white looking, light skinned black women characters who are very different from, um, you know, the um, other black people in, in the novel and don't necessarily identify with them because they are raised as, as white women. Um, but, you know, the the picture that she gives us of the end of Romance of the Republic is just a picture of a post-war amalgamated nation in which black people are incorporated into the kind of um, American national family in the same um, vein as various white European people. And, and these things are all kind of, um, uh, um, you know, mixed together within these, the same family of these two women at the center of this, um, of, the, of this novel, um, uh, and naturalized the, these, these women's names are Flora and Rosa, they're flowers. This is all, um, uh, you know, kind of very clearly put in, in opposition to, um, you know, racist arguments that, um, um, racial amalgamation was inherently unnatural and would, 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 um, uh, and scientific racism that, you know, talked about things like, uh, racial degeneration or something like that. Um, but, but Lydia Murray Child is, is, um, still giving a kind of assimilationist, um, you know, uh, approach to race that, that has some pretty clear problems, but, um, is also, uh, in, in a kind of stark defiance to certain kinds of scientific racism um, that are still, you know, going to be circulating by the time she writes this in the late 19th century. And you remind us again and again in the book that people who were anti-slavery were not, could not be assumed, nor should we correctly believe that they were anti-racist. You give us examples from Lincoln's own speeches. Um, we see it in the Quaker community uh, of this woman who's not providing her the support that you would assume they would if they were in fact both anti-slavery and anti-racist um, because they weren't both. Um, and this theme goes throughout the book to remind us again and again that it's two separate things and that anti-racism is far more difficult to bring about because it's far more difficult to legislate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and so, you know, you do have a number of kind of, you know, legal points um, 
you know, that are, that are in operation here, like things like marriage law, for example, or, you know, um, is one, but, um, you know, like the case of William Allen and Mary King, like, you know, things can be legal and still, um, you know, these, these people, um, don't, you know, uh, um, leave, you know, while their marriage is legal, they're not safe, um, in, in, in this place, they're not welcomed, um, among a lot of King's family and they, um, you know, decide that this is not a country that they want to live in. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's also, you know, various things that make them precarious, uh, you know, vis-a-vis, um, slavery, right. What, you know, in, in, in a world in which, um, uh, um, all black people, um, are at least in, in, in some danger of, uh, enslavement, uh, right. When we have, um, uh, things like the fugitive slave law, uh, you know, the, the question of the safety of her children, even though those children are technically born, um, uh, born free and, you know, unenslavable as children of a white woman, um, you know, we know that um, people are kidnapped um, and, and this, you know, and these children might look visibly black enough that they don't pass for whites. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can see, um, you know, how this would be a, a dangerous situation for them. And in chapter six, you you urge us towards um, a genealogical future that does not reproduce white supremacy, but towards a more racially inclusive future, a future that will necess- necessitate kinship with those who are black and brown and indigenous and queer. In the few minutes we have left, can you talk more about that? Um, well, I, I ended this um this this book by kind of thinking um uh you know kind of closing the circle of of thinking about these um you know larger scales and stakes of of racial mixture and um uh i i wanted to think about um uh you know the the larger racial um you know teleologies of of reproduction um uh especially those that I discuss in the, in the um, middle couple of chapters in the book um, uh, that are in many ways about black women's reproduction um, uh, of, of, of blackness um, as uh, um, something that um, is, isn't, um, isn't necessarily thwarted by the foreclosing of kinship that enslavement um, is seeking to enact, but um, that has a genealogical scope that um, goes beyond them, um, that is is necessarily teleological, um, pointing towards, um, you know, the perpetuation of Black people into a future that um, uh, is, you know, framed in various legal ways as perpetuating the system of slavery in which people follow the condition of their mother, but in which that future teleology is, is, is imposed. It's not the necessary um, teleology that, that that's happening there. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, I end the book um, with a, a coda that, that conclusion that, um, thinks about uh, Toni Morrison's um, 2008 novel, A Mercy. Um, 
um, which I, I think um, gives us a really interesting kind of um, theorization of, of, of interracial kinship and how something like interracial um, sisterhood is foreclosed um, uh, historically um, uh, for the characters that, that she describes um, because um, this white genealogy tends towards white supremacy and its, and its racial production. It doesn't necessarily seek to um, make some kind of radical um, you know, racial in- inclusion. And um, you know, I, I was interested in how that failure of interracial kinship um, you know, shows us this more usual framing than many of the texts that I discuss um, that are exceptional in that they're not the, they, they show us ways that race works um, in unusual ways, um, but they reveal that um, the kind of white supremacist teleology that Morrison leaves us with in a mercy is not inevitable. It's not a necessary teleology, but a choice. Um, you know, that, that, that these people are, are that, that, you know, the, the white woman at the center of um, th- that uh, part of the narrative is, is, is kind of making, um, uh, you know, that um, this gets foreclosed, but that the, that foreclosure is deliberate and um, it's not inevitable. And it could have been otherwise, um, even while we understand historically, um, you know, how this, how this story is going to play out. What do you hope this book sparks for listeners and for readers? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, um, you know, one, one of my biggest takeaways I think here is um, the, this, this question of the non-necessity of racist teleologies um, that, you know, even though we can understand historically how, um, uh, you know, logics of racial essentialism, how logics of, um, you know, white supremacy um, and, um, you know, racial segregationism have, uh, you know, kind of played out um, and how those appear in, in, in U.S. literature and culture, um, you know, th- you know, from the 18th century through to the present, um, to uh, you know, to, to, to kind of understand um, these 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 teleologies that are otherwise um, as things that kind of always linger as as possibilities, even in any of these previous moments. Um, and that these kind of show us the the non necessity of the the you know the kind of usual um, uh, you know uh, preservation of um, you know of, of white supremacy um, you know the kind of uh, usual rendering of um, kinlessness that um, slavery uh, you know worked to enact uh, upon black families um, that. Um, that while these things are historically true and historically uh, predictable, maybe um, that they they weren't inevitable. There are always choices that 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 that, that people made, or or um, they could have been otherwise. Um, and so I think um, 
you know, kind of tracing, um, you know, the, the, the way that these, you know, racial genealogies are working in, uh, you know, throughout those, these different 19th century texts through to, you know, the way people continue to talk about race in, you know, um, often essentializing ways that are still tied up in a lot of the same anxieties about, um, um, racial essentialism and especially preserving whiteness, um, uh, that these, um, you know, can't simply be understood as like inevitable for their time or, um, or completely logical, but that these other, um, but that because race is constructed, because, um, you know, the, the various forces of racism that are also kind of operating in these constructions of race, um, you know, make it, a you know, I guess, make us understand um, the workings of race in, in the present, especially that um, oftentimes look very, very familiar to 19th century contexts for me, um, uh, to see that these, these things could have always been otherwise, um, uh, that, that other features um, were always possible and still are um, possible. Um, and that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, lead to um, uh, the erasure of race, but a different um, framing of, how, you know, how race's resonance is, is, is working, right? That, um, uh, and, and, and how we understand, um, uh, you know, for example, um, white feminism's historical failures of, of kinship with, with, um, uh, with, with, with white people. Uh, a, a kind of um, huge topic for thinking, I think, about contemporary politics in the United States, um, that those two, um, you know, were, were never um, historically inevitable, um, but did work differently in different kinds of texts, both fictional and nonfictional, um, and could be framed otherwise. Um, uh, and that that's still, I think, uh, you know, a possibility. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Fielder, and Thank telling you so us about you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I really appreciate this conversation so much. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.